Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a founder, you know, that has been scaling, you know, building and scaling, you know, his company, his latest baby, which is a rocket ship for quite some time. You know, we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, about the whole process of uh, going through the, through, through building a database, you know, type of company, pairing, you know, the product to the idea, pivoting and sticking, you know, to, uh, to your guts. Uh, and the vision of the business, because, I mean, he's been doing it for 14 years. Think about this. 14 years is like 100 years in corporate. You know, so unbelievable. But again, you know, we're going to be finding his journey uh, in this episode. Quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Srini, Srini, Srini Basan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. It's a pleasure to be here. So originally born in India, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? I know it was actually very, I would say, quiet where I grew up. It's the south of India. Um, you know, I was interested in a lot of interesting things. But one of the things which taught me was to be always um, open-minded because you never know what you're going to get. You know, a lot of um, India has gone through a lot of changes since then, even more than before. Uh, but also my schooling was pretty simple. Um, I surprised myself somewhat by getting into one of the top engineering schools in the country and started with computer science, which I really started loving. So that's kind of how I ended up in this field. So how do you land, you know, walk us through, through how do you land in Wisconsin? You know, what was, what was, what was, what was, what got you there and, and obviously, you know, I'm not going to ask you how you ended up in, in the whole world of uh, engineering, because, you know, if you speak with anyone in India, they're either an engineer or a doctor, right? It's, it's really remarkable. But in this case, you know, like you ended up after, you know, you got your degree there in the Institute of Technology, you decided to come to, come to Wisconsin to do the PhD out of all things. So how was the landing, you know, and how was coming to America like for you? Um, it was a very interesting experience. One of the things that happened during my undergraduate is I had a choice between going to Wisconsin and Yale. Uh, and my bent was mostly systems oriented. You know, I loved C programming even in those days. And that made me decide to go to Wisconsin, which is more of a system school. Turned out in hindsight, that was the perfect decision for me. Uh, the one thing which was kind of um, unexpected because I'd never even checked the weather in Wisconsin. <laughs> I decided to go there. Um, I come from a really, really wa warm place in India, Chennai, which is um, typically the lowest temperature you see is like 65 degrees or 70 degrees and the coldest, the middle of the night. And then Wisconsin, of course, the, the can go negative um, uh, 30, 40 wind chill and so on. So that was an interesting experience when I, when I moved there. But I really loved the... Um, the systems bent of the computer science department in Wisconsin, especially in operating systems and databases. Now, what would you say that makes building a database so complex? And why does it take so long? And then also, why were you so excited about it? Because, I mean, it was a 
also quite a shift from 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 where you were going. I mean, obviously it was the topic, you know, and and so forth. But I mean, you've dedicated, you know, a, a big chunk of your life to it. So why? Well, uh, I first when I, when I was in grad school, I started with operating systems. I even uh, had a paper in the, uh, one of the symposiums of operating system principles. Um, but because of the people in Wisconsin then, you know, Dave DeWitt, Mike Carey, and so on, they were leaders in the database field. Uh, I kind of got attracted to the exciting work that was going on. So database became a passion for me. Uh, and that's the area where I completed my PhD in. After so, that, oops, go ahead. Keep going, keep going, please. So after that, um, I realized when I graduated that a lot of the great database work has already been done. This was in uh, 30 years ago. So I switched over, you know, I worked, for, worked at IBM for a few years, but I then switched over to uh, building apps on top of databases for almost like 15 to 16 years. Um, this is what I did in a couple of startups, one in interactive TV, other one in mobile, ending up in Yahoo to run scalable mobile systems on top of existing databases, which essentially were not working out that great. So we needed to invent new databases. And that kind of got me back full circle into building a new database from scratch, because that's where my passion was earlier. And then I came back to it because I felt that it was time to build these new databases to satisfy uh, the evolving requirements brought on by the internet-based uh, and mobile-based applications. So in, in your case, you know, after this, you ended up uh, joining IBM, you know, out of all places. I mean, quite a remarkable company and obviously quite different from what you would encounter after, you know, really going at it with uh, mm -hmm. startup land, right? But, uh, right? but how was that journey too, you know, with uh, a bigger player? Because I think that, that gives you perspective now. You know, you are able to see how a really successful large company operates and then you're able to reverse back engineer to where you are at, you know, maybe with a startup. So what kind of worldview or, or perspective would you say the uh, journey with IBM gave you? Uh, that's a great question because um, when I went to IBM, I had just completed my PhD and I didn't know really what working was. <laughs> so I also didn't know what working in a large company meant. And I was fortunate that I joined a group called the Database Technology Institute, which was run by um, an IBM fellow called Don Hadley, who happens to be actually an, uh, an advisor to Aerospike. But in his team, we were allowed to look at, I would say, innovative ideas and apply them to products. That's what the, it was supposed to be in between research and product and the Database Technology Institute enabled us to do that. And as a result, in the four years I was there, I was part of a very small team, two to eight people, and we shipped three products in just four years. So we almost behaved like a startup inside IBM. And the resources of IBM were tremendous, as you can imagine. You know? And this actually gave me an interesting perspective that you do not have to be slow in doing anything uh, in a large company. And that, that perspective I took with me when I went to a real startup where I felt that could be even faster. And that was my first experience, my first startup is with six people, 
we did something which would have taken 20 people and three years to do. In the startup, we did it with six people and six months. Wow. And mainly because the overhead was less. And that was like, a, I, I always carry that with me. You don't need a lot of people to build a great systems software. Now, that, that company actually was quite the wild ride, which was Liberate Technologies. So yes. how, how wild of a ride was that? No, it, it, was, it was quite wild in multiple ways. Number one is, um, uh, before Liberate, uh, it was called Network Computer. It was a merged company from um, Oracle's NCI and another company called Navio, which is where myself and also my co-founder, Enero Spike, joined. And the, in those days, we actually had a team which built a product which was deployed in various um, cable companies and so on. And you really didn't have to be profitable in that. The, the ride was really wild in the dot-com phase. You have a product which is running, then you can go IPO. <laughs> so basically, we went IPO, and, and then um, and the stock just kept going up. I, mean, I still remember, you know, I helped remodel my house and all that. Uh, you know, I, I don't think, and then it came down fairly fast after that. And it was, it was a, and then so we, we I saw essentially a full life cycle of a company from being a startup going big and also failing, which I think I took a lot of lessons from that. I left before the full failure happened, but uh, it was clear to me that when an opportunity exists, you got to take advantage of it and not wait for things to happen because then failure is what happens. And, you know, you know how technology moves and it's moved several cycles after that. Now, your next experience uh, with startups was actually Birdisoft, which had a really nice uh, outcome and obviously a really even bigger impact, you know, once it was acquired by Yahoo. But what were you guys doing there at Birdisoft? And what would you say were the ingredients that you saw present that you didn't see before with Liberate that allowed for that experience to end up uh, having a really nice, you know, walk through the finish line like you guys did? Verdisoft is a company founded by um, a person who had sold Star Office to Sun, and he was passionate uh, about uh, building products for mobile, uh, the mobile ecosystem. And what I learned there was the ability to work with teams in different areas. Like, for example, you know, we had a team in Germany, Hamburg, in Germany. And I was based in Palo Alto uh, and we had two teams, how to work well together and the complementary uh, skills of both sides. How do you bring it together to form a successful product? And we, we, we actually went through uh, lo not just the technological innovations we needed to do to build the mobile and everything you take for granted in mobile technology today. We were actually pioneers in building those. You know, we worked with some of the, you know, the danger device of the T-Mobile um, sidekick uh, in the early days. It was a, it was a pretty impressive uh, email system. We worked with the BlackBerry notifications. You know, all of those, we actually worked with every device that Nokia built out until, uh, you know, we got acquired by, as you pointed out, by, by Yahoo in 2004, 2005. And then we worked on the iPhone. So it was an amazing journey. So we, we, we started from nothing. Uh, in terms of um, mobile, nothing existing really for mobile devices. And then we built all of those pieces. And then eventually it grew all the way to the iPhone. So I've seen that entire journey uh, of how you develop um, a new uh, area, so to speak, you know, uh, things which are going to 
you know, become possible in the near future and you start working on it, you innovate, you figure it out and then you scale it. So I saw the whole journey from the beginning till the iPhone launch and later. So that, that was a pretty impressive experience. And you also got uh, to participate too in the, some of the golden years of Yahoo, you know, with getting it right with the iPhone, no? which is something yeah. that um, was praised by Steve Jobs. So how was it like, you know, at that point, you know, to um, be part of the, all the new trends that were happening in mobile and, and, you know, I guess that time, you know, at a company like Yahoo. The way I think about it is like, you know, uh, again, related to something like baseball, which I like. So if, if you're in a major league game, you know, and you're in the World Series, you know, that's the kind of feeling you get when you're releasing products on the first launch of the iPhone, because you've now, uh, you're changing the world, right? I mean, that's what Steve Jobs uh, you know, did with the iPhone and many other things. Uh, and, and you're part of that. And not only that, our email, all the work we had done in mobile over the last several years before that, they culminated in the Yahoo Mail being the best email to run on a smartphone at that point in time. Everybody else has, of course, since caught up and even gone beyond that. But we were only picked by Steve Jobs because we were the best possible emails because we had real-time notifications, which is uh, whenever an email arrived in your uh, inbox, the, the phone would chime, you know, but, but this would, of course, run all the battery out of the phone. <laughs> so you had to, uh, you know, uh, pace it a little bit in the early days. Uh, but all those things improved. But that's why it was chosen. And we also had a better mobile search at Yahoo in those days. So it was really good. It was great to be competing with Google and winning in the mobile area for a couple of years until the, you know, Google, of course, uh, you know the rest of the story about what happened to Yahoo. But the point is, uh, it was great to be um, in the major league, so to speak, and uh, literally in a World Series game kind of experience is what that was for me. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So ultimately, the idea of Aerospike comes knocking. Tell us 
why did you think it was compelling enough to uh, take the risk? Because, I mean, obviously, at this point, you know, you had already been part of startups, some that worked, some that didn't. But what made you think that this was meaningful enough for you to take action? You know, part of it is, as a founder, uh, one is a little crazy in making decisions. Um, leaving that aside, um, I met my um, co-founder, uh, Aero Spike, uh, Brian Bukowski. You know, he and I had worked together really well in our previous stint at Liberate. And I always remember him. I remember him as one of the smartest people I've worked with and most capable. So when we met, because I was at Yahoo and I was thinking of what to do next, and I've already had run into all kinds of problems with database systems not scaling and going down on high-performance, uh, real-time mobile apps. So I learned that Brian was already experimenting with using SSDs, and he had built some code already on how to uh, essentially expand the real-time footprint of data by storing them on SSDs on not just in DRAM. And this will give you sub-millisecond response time. So you're an order of magnitude better in terms of performance uh, at high throughput. And he did this because he had met with uh, Dave Flynn, the founder of Fusion.io, who's an expert. Um, and then Dave, Brian, and I had worked together in Liberate. And this helped, for example, get Brian to understand how SSDs work. And then he explained that to me. And in that first discussion we had, it was clear to me that we can build a system which is 10 times faster or more capable or more higher performance than existing systems, but also 10 times lower in cost. See, that's the huge thing I didn't expect because once you can put real-time data in SSDs, the price per bit for SSD is much lower, in an order of magnitude lower than price per bit for DRAM, which is where all the data needs to be. Now, the issue then is, uh, how do you leverage it? So you have to rewrite your file system. You have to redo the database, which was typically done using buffer pools and so on to be able to directly read data off of SSDs, which is because SSDs are random access. So you, got, you get this, so you need to build all this technology and that's what excites, excited me at, personally, because it, it took me back to my original uh, database roots, where we were inventing, you know, in, in my PhDs, you know, the whole team in Wisconsin was inventing a whole bunch of interesting database technology. I felt that we could do that again, and also solve real problems, which were becoming important to solve as the internet was growing, right? Because I've been in the interactive TV company with Liberate and then with Verisoft and Yahoo on the mobile, it's nothing but the internet. So I know the applications were coming, and the databases were not going to be able to solve these problems, especially in the real-time area, even the ones which had been founded like uh, Mongo and Cassandra, they were not focused on the super real-time aspects of the solution. And that's what Aerospike uh, chose to focus on. So I guess for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of Aerospike? How do you guys make money? Um, because of the difference between the TCO differences of um, uh, SSDs versus DRAM, I'll just simplify it because there's a whole bunch of details to it. It gives you, literally, if you run a system with, um, let's say, you know, a few terabytes of data, we can save about $50,000 
for every few nodes that you're adding. It's ridiculous the amount of savings you can get. It's typically millions and millions of dollars of lower TCO at high scale, okay? And this enables us, that is Aerospike, to have a business model where we can charge a portion of the difference as our license fee because our technology is fairly complex. You know, we have like dozen, uh, about 14 patents on it. And this is designed so that applications can leverage this lower cost. And therefore, that's our business model if you think about it. You know, basically, you have enough uh, uh, gap between what it costs running Aerospike and what it costs running anything else, running it in DRAM for the same effect, that we can charge you know, um, substantial license fees. And you guys have been at it for close to 15 years. I mean, that's an yes. insane amount of time. And obviously, as everything, you know, technology goes very quickly. You know, the market shifts very quickly. How would you say that you guys have been able to adjust and adapt, you know, perhaps even pivoting, you know, in order to really stay ahead of the curve? When we started, so, so just like with every startup, you got to hit a few kind of, I would say, inflection points. So we hit the first one very quickly. That's why we still exist. Because we started this company and virtually immediately we found the ad tech market. Which were thirsting, which was thirsting for this kind of uh, product. So we got to twenty customers in one year. In fact, before we got funding, we had three customers. Because when Brian and I started the company, we were a little skeptical ourselves about whether our product could do what we thought it could do. And we could do the math and figure out the engineering behind it. But then we also wanted to prove it to ourselves. So we actually, the two of us, um, wrote the code, released the product, did the market research. We discovered ad tech in our market research. And that's what we started selling. The, so we had three customers before our first uh, funding round closed. So we bootstrapped the company. And that was huge amount of confidence it gave us that we could run the company with just two of us. We could support it 24 by 7. The product was good enough to do that. And then we expanded it once we got funding in 2011. So, so this, was, this was really important for us to, to, to do. And, and, and then we found iTech. That was easy. Easy meaning like it's easy in the sense that it happened fast. But then after two or three years, we realized that we had to decide whether we want to uh, continue the company, sell it or whatever, right? I mean, this usually everybody goes through this. Is it a one-trick pony, so to speak? Do we have any other uh, possible um, customers? At that point, we, we actually got interest from uh, a payment company, a large payment company. I think it was PayFair, PayPal, also Nokia, another uh, one of the largest uh, brokerage firms. All of them happened in about 2014, about four to five years after we started it. And that gave us an idea that maybe we should expand it to financial services and telcos and so on. So we got another round of funding in 2014, and then we basically did that. And that took us several years. And now that we got, we proved out so many different verticals, we now have proved out like seven or eight verticals. Now all we are trying to do is how to get our growth rates up. You know, uh, we, we routinely grow 20% year over year, and now we're trying to get it up to 40%. So it kind of continues the journey. And I, would, I do want to say one thing, though. I think our product was a little bit early to market. But we found a way to 
generate enough revenues and grow the, grow the company so that we can be there as the market develops. So that was, that was quite a bit of learning involved in doing that. And how much capital have you guys raised to date? We, we, we raised about 75 million, fairly low for a database company because we have, as I pointed out, always had revenues even before our first round of funding. So we have funded ourselves more through these revenues. So, and we also have not expanded the company to be too big. So we've tried to live within our means so we can catch the market. And that's actually one of the big reasons we still exist is we are able to kind of uh, be there. Now, now I think things are taking off. So it's, it's actually a great place to be. So obviously, you know, with, um, you know, getting that money in and, and, you know, it comes vision, right? So they're betting on the vision. And, and I think that a strong vision also is going to allow you to navigate, you know, market moves and shifts. I think that in your guys' case, I'm sure it was really helpful. So when we're thinking about the vision here, let me put this out there. Let's say you were to go to sleep tonight, Srini, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Aerospike is fully realized. What does that world look like? Um, that's a very simple question for me because I've had the same vision. So one of the things that Aerospike does well is handle mission-critical real-time applications. Now, with the advent of the gen ai you know we've always been aerospace has always been used in ai ml applications you know you can call it the classical ai so if and when aerospike actually becomes the basis of all of these ai applications on the in the real time space that's important we're not going to be the basis of uh, everything that you do with ai but if it is something to do with real time it is something to do with um, being precise about decisions based on data which is uh, you know specific to particular entities you know so for example a company is trying to apply gen ai to improve its bottom line what are the what are the changes that it can do you know we could actually play very well in that area so i would say that most of the large companies which are interested in mission critical real-time apps if they end up using aerospike for it then that would be what i would think would be a complete success for Aerospike. So let's say now I put you into a time machine and let's talk about the past with a lens of reflection. And I bring you back in time to the moment that you were thinking about doing something while you were at Yahoo, you know, doing something of your own. And let's say you're able to have a talk with that uh, younger Srini that uh, just gave the notice at Yahoo and is ready to uh, go at it. And let's say you're able to stop that younger self coming out of the door from Yahoo's office. And you're able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think there's exactly one thing. You know, everything that we did was fine, except one thing, one piece of advice I would give the younger me is to focus a lot more on developer adoption. If there's one thing Aerospike could have done things better, we could have figured out an easier way to develop on our product. We were more, I believe, um, focused, which is also important, to make sure our system worked really well and it would stay up, you know, uh, all the time. The high performance, it kept track of all the, you know, all the systems aspects of it, the operational aspects of it, we were world class from day one. But the developer aspects of it, I would say that we could have done much better if, as a company, we would have been easier to adopt the product. You know, it's not that hard anymore, but we would have probably grown faster 
in, in, in the marketplace if we had paid more attention to developer adoption earlier in our um, you know, history. I love that. So, uh, Srini, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Well, I'm, I'm on uh, Twitter uh, or X, you know, Nasav. You can reach me there or you can uh, send me an email to Srini at aerospike.com. Easy enough. Well, Srini, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you, Alejandro. It's been a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.